Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about voting rights. Let's go above the fold with today's headlines. Over the past week, the U.S. has once again been rocked by a pair of two mass shootings. Last week in Atlanta, Georgia, a gunman went on a rampage at several massage parlors claiming eight lives, six of which were Asian American women. This shooting sprung the country to a debate on the growing and persistent anti-Asian hate crimes that have become too commonplace since the start of the pandemic, in part due to the anti-Asian rhetoric around the coronavirus often being perpetrated by politicians, including the former president. This week in Boulder, Colorado, on Monday, a man went on a shooting spree at a King Supers grocery store, claiming the lives of 10 people, including one police officer, who was the first to respond to the scene. This shooting in Colorado has once again pushed the debate of gun safety legislation to the forefront as we as a country once again try to find a solution to the growing and very specifically American problem of such mass shootings. In the wake of both shootings, President Biden is calling on Congress to act, specifically the Senate, to pass the two bills that have already been passed by the House that would close the background check loopholes, as well as move to ban assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. Here at Dangerously Likely, we will not just send empty thoughts and prayers. While we do send our condolences and deepest sympathies to the families of these victims, wishing them peace and healing, we also vow to use our platform to continue to push back against discrimination and hate against our Asian American and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, and continue to highlight and educate on the gun safety legislation that is badly needed in this country. We have for too long done nothing when tragedy strikes our communities due to gun violence, and we must act now so that more of our fellow Americans will not have died in vain. Caleb, Terrell, Obviously, with a heavy heart, um, we do send our thoughts and prayers and condolences uh, to these families, to their communities, um, and, and to all of our fellow Americans when, once again, we've been hit with such a terrible um, tragedy twice in the past week. Um, what are your thoughts on this renewed call for gun safety legislation, and where do you think it will go? Terrell, let's start with you. Well, it's hard not to even recognize in the pod right now how much of an impact it's had on communities across this country as we record on a Wednesday, not our traditional Tuesday, um, after Caleb and I were able to attend a vigil for Asian American and Pacific Island folk in Idaho who are feeling the hurt and the pain of xenophobia and racism across our country, but also feeling their community impacted, similar to our all of our BIPOC folk. Um, I think for me something that rung true was uh, the conversation we had during our last pod of what needs to happen now. What's that next action that needs to, to be the focus. And we were talking about climate change. We talked about voting rights, which I'm really appreciative. We're going to hit on a little bit later today. Um, But we were also able to highlight um, gun reform and even call true to the fact that, in a pandemic, we might not see the headlines coming out as much as we did pre-pandemic, but that still need to be a focus. And And I, I appreciate being on this pod with you all that one, we had a foresight, but two, we can be a part of those calls for change. What about you, Caleb? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, kind of to echo your thoughts, um, we went to the vigil the other night and it was it was a beautiful kind of service in honor of um, the people uh, uh, who have been not only impacted, but also the people who have have died um, in these shootings, specifically the Atlanta shooting against um, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. My heart just goes out to everyone involved and impacted. And like these kind of anti-Asian like hate crimes have been happening more and more often recently. And while the U.S. has a has a long history of a long American history of this kind of, of this kind of hate. I, I feel like not a lot of people were really in tune to it this time around. And then suddenly we had two mass shootings in a week. And one of them was an Asian hate crime, even though the police have, I believe still refused to say that it was, um, in terms of gun safety, look, we need to do something about it. I, I, I don't necessarily know what that is, an assault or a ban on assault rifles. Uh, sounds like a good a good first step. Um, like many of the biggest mass shootings, if not the vast majority of them, have been with like AR-15s, for mm-hmm. instance. And it's just 
like everyone has the right to bear arms, but like, why aren't we, why aren't we checking these individuals? Mm -hmm. Why aren't we like, why aren't we doing more to prevent these kind of massacres and hate crimes? Yeah. And let us not forget there, this country has experienced an assault rifles ban. It existed. It was passed by Congress. It was signed into law by a president and a more recent Congress allowed it to ellipse. And mm-hmm. um, there was a very interesting statistic out. I want to say in the New York times, but I might be misquoting um, that recognized after the assault ban, assault rifle ban um, expired, we saw 240% jump in um, gun violence and directly correlated to that one piece of legislation no longer being um, in effect in our country. Yeah. And I think that Terrell, those are the kind of numbers and the kind of statistics that I think are really important for us to be highlighting on the show, because it's, when you look at that kind of data, it just slaps you in the face. You cannot, even if you're generous, right. With, with that kind of increase um, in gun violence, even if you're generous and cut that in half, it's still an completely unacceptable level um, of increase in violence. And you cannot help but correlate the two. Mm-hmm. There's literally places in America where people are so used to gun vi- violence. And that just shouldn't, like as an American, that just should not, that shouldn't be how some of us live our lives. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't have to walk to a grocery store or be in a grocery store, you know, just getting our friggin' vegetables and be scared that it's going to be shot up. Like that should not, that should not be an everyday thought for us, but it is, it is. Yeah. What hope do we have when legislators are more willing to advocate for students to get um, bulletproof backpacks than actually have an attempt to limit the sale and usage of assault rifles and things that can cause harm to our children? Republicans and and some always talk about small government, small government, but government not doing anything to save lives is like, it's just not fucking okay. Mm -hmm. It's not, it absolutely isn't. And I hope to, I'm going to talk about this specific point later when we're discussing HR1, but something that comes to my mind is specifically with gun violence, with um, the environment, with infrastructure there is all this data and these statistics that are available to us to understand where we fall short in comparison to our peers across the world in other industrialized modern nations. And this kind of violence is one where we, it's staggeringly different from, from other um, countries who have the same right to bear arms, mm-hmm. um, but do have implemented assault, assault rifle bans, et cetera, that when we have that right in front of us and we know that it's an issue and we have proven data on when you implement certain legislation or certain policies, how it can curb that number. I do not understand why when we want to claim to be the greatest country on planet earth, that we are not better about identifying where our weaknesses are our problems when there is a solution and then putting one in place. It really frustrates me. And I want to talk more about that later, but I felt that this was a good time to make that point because it's extremely um, related to, to, I think gun safety as well. Yeah. Yeah. Taking us to the White House um, today, President Joe Biden announced that Vice President Kamala Harris will be the point person on immigration as the United States deals with a crisis of sorts at the southern border. Um, They highlighted that Harris's main focus will be to will be two pronged and she will be working to slow the flow of irregular migrants by addressing the root causes um, that are prompting individuals to leave their home countries and come here, as well as working to strengthen relationships with um, our allies in Mexico and other um, Central American countries. Just to highlight, most border cities right now are bracing for and preparing as they see slow influxes of um, migrants coming in. And it's brought in a renewed conversation around our immigration policy and specifically how we handle children at the border. And I want to pose a a brief conversation topic to you all on what do we do in these situations, um, specific for you, Caleb and Torrance. Um, How do we handle immigration when it is a human rights crisis? You know, I think that one of the biggest problems with the border right now is um, 
not only policy, but infrastructure. <laughs> and I want everyone that's listening to this to just recall not that long ago when we had a different president who literally tried to strip anything away in terms of infrastructure for the last four years with immigration. And because I, I see a lot of people who are like, oh, Biden's still putting children in camps. It's not good conditions and all this stuff. And I think a lot of people don't realize what the Trump administration actually did down there. And now they literally cannot handle it. So they're trying their best to get these kids into good conditions and into like, they can't keep them there for like the law says, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to get them into to people who will take them uh, for now. And, and when you have a presidency that just completely just blew up what we had for immigration, and now you have someone that's trying to put it back together in a, in a more humane way. Um, I, I don't think like it's hard to do in the middle of a crisis and you've only been president for like two months. Like, I think we need to slow down here and I think we need to do everything we can to not only raise awareness of what's going on at the border, but also if there's a way to, to uh, help make sure there's humane conditions and stuff, we need to do it. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the blame is misplaced in this specific instance. I I want to talk about this in, in two different ways. One specifically refer, referencing the previous pre president and the way that he handled it. Because my criticism of him had actually little to do with the complexity of the problem because it is it is complex and it's hard. And the, we, we already had a broken immigration system. The infrastructure mm -hmm. was already a failing infrastructure. However, the previous administration's tone and posture towards immigration towards towards immigrants was openly disgusting and discriminatory and not only like was, was the rhetoric that way it was matched by their actions and the treatment of people down there at the border mm -hmm. now i actually did understand the the issue of these migrant facilities and how, how are we going to place these children and these families not separate them now that's mm -hmm. one that had thing that has to be very clear not separate them but the sheer number and infrastructure of places that we can to keep these people, and, and by these people, I mean these, I should say that these immigrants, um, it's, we don't have enough space. That's just a fact, right? Yeah. Like, like there is a limited amount of space. There's a limited amount of beds, especially in the middle of a pandemic when we're looking to do social, social distance. And mm -hmm. we can see from the coverage and the reports on the news that that is not happening in all these facilities. But we have to understand that this administration is taking a completely different posture towards the issue and is trying to handle it, like Caleb said, with humanity and genuinely wants to fix the problem and not just put band-aids over an already big issue. Um, I think that we have to give a little grace to this administration for trying to fix a, fix a problem that was already broken and made worse by the previous, but mm -hmm. also like that grace is not due to the fact that we're not upset with some of the, the actions that are being taken down there and that the progress isn't being made quick enough. The grace comes from, this is someone who is telling us very openly and is pursuing it with policy and putting people in place who can relate to the issue that they want to do something right, that they want to treat people humanely, that they want to get, to make a pathway to citizenship for people who immigrate here. Their tone is better. And I think that that's where they deserve grace. However, we have to be realists about how difficult the problem is and how complex the issue um, will be to find a solution. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with that, Torrance. Um, and I think like the, the issue, at least from what I've been reading, is mostly that there's a lot of just unaccompanied minors coming across the border right now. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not as much about separation as it is. What are we going to do with all these unaccompanied minors? But, you know, I, I think what's also just this whole situation is just so complicated. Immigration policy, immigration itself. It's always been a complicated issue in America. It's not even necessarily a Democrat or Republican issue. Like mm -hmm. obviously both sides have different ideas, but when you look at the population of America, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, issues that feel more Republican leaning that Democrats support. And there's a lot of things that feel more Democrat leaning that Republicans support when it comes to, when it comes to immigration policy and what, how they want the border managed and such. It's just, overall and completely complicated there obviously needs to be a, accountability um to the current president for what they do mm -hmm. but i agree with you torrance um the tone's a lot better and i think uh grace in that respect should be afforded yeah and i definitely look forward to 
diving in deeper, um, specifically not legislative lowdown on immigration, as the Biden administration did announce that they have a robust policy to begin to reform the system. Um, but just echoing some points that you both highlighted, there's a difference between um, hypocrisy and holding an administration to the fire. And I do believe and feel that we are in a space right now where the administration should be held to a fire, but there also is context that has to be owned of the separation policy was challenged by this administration only to be stayed by a district court. Um, While there is still separation that's happening, there's a concerted effort by the administration to relocate and allow the children to be with their families and be somewhere safe. And even though it pained my heart to see the videos of the facilities that they were in, it mattered that they were actually given facial coverings and that they were playing games and that there were spaces that they could be together. Um, not to harp on the old administration for too much, but I'll never, I'll never be able to erase from my mind this young Central American girl laying on the floor in her own diaper that's clearly swollen with urine just on the floor, cold, no cover versus what I'm seeing from these areas. And yes, you can talk about marketing and media spin and things of that nature. Um, But again, there's a difference between holding them to the fire and hypocrisy. Uh, Moving on from the Washington Post, Mark uh, Greeno, Evanston, Illinois leads the country with the first reparations program for black residents. And I, I kind of wanted to highlight this. Uh, the Evanston City Council has approved phase one of, of reparations for the city. Uh, the first of its kind in the U.S. Phase one will make $400,000 available in $25,000 home ownership and improvement grants. It will provide mortgage assistance for black residents, um, and especially those that can show that they are direct descendants of the individuals who lived in the city between specifically 1919 and 1969 who suffered from such discrimination. This is part of a larger $10 million package that has now been approved for more reparations initiatives, which will actually be funded from annual cannabis taxes over the next 10 years. There's many people that support this. You know, some think, in it, some think that it isn't the correct form of reparations. Others think that it isn't enough, which it isn't. Uh, but I think it's a good first step that may create a domino effect for other communities to do this as well. And now they have a blueprint of one way they could do it. I think it could also put more pressure on lawmakers at the federal level to pass H.R. 40, which would create a national commission to study potential reparations. So despite this being a small town of about 75,000 people, 16% of whom are black, uh, to both of you, how big of a deal do you all think this is? And what do you all think the effects of this will be? Torrance, let's start with you. I think that this is... when, When I first saw the headline about it, I was curious how they were going to go about doing this because reparations is something that is, has actually also like evaded me. Like I've tried to like think of like what would a good policy look like. Now I'm not going to act like I've put like a ton of thought into it, but I have tried to, to brainstorm a bit and I didn't land fully on this, but I actually think this is a pretty intentional way to go about it because a, a lot of the places where, where African-Americans were syst- systematically disenfranchised were federally backed loans um, during that exact time period that they're, that they're referencing. And that is where a large, a large amount of the, the racial um, wealth gap exists is because of equity in houses and passing that on in generational wealth. Because um, I think that it, I think something like 98% of mortgages d- during like the fifties and sixties were federally backed. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it, it's huge. It makes a huge impact. I think this is a really great first step and it doesn't shock me that it's Evanston. Evanston is where Northwestern is. And so it's, it's probably, it's a very liberal uh, place. Um, and so I think this is a really good step forward. And I think that it can be used as a broader blueprint um, for either entire States or the country. Yeah. I, I think for me, it's a great example of, again, where civics has failed our generation and where we've lacked in education. Um, a lot of people are probably going to be frustrated with this or feel that it's inappropriate. I know I harped aggressively in my last tangent about frustrations I've had around individuals feeling that African-Americans can't keep leaning on slavery, right? Um, But something that stuck out to me about this is the argument against reparations and that movement is one, that our government can't afford it, and two, that things have gone in such a way that will allow for 
this populace to um, uh, to better themselves. And something that I, I don't think is taught or is or is at least graced over is the Compensation Emancipation Act of 1862 that actually allowed for slave owners to be reimbursed after their slaves were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, they were given $300 for their slaves, each individual slave. That's a lot back then. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. As a recognition that they were going to face a financial burden. And for a country to continue to believe that there has not been advantage given to the oppressor, the white folk, and to believe that an act like this by Evanson is inappropriate and not recognizing that there have been systematic uh, principles and actions to withhold a population and, and hold them back for generations is just wrong. And, and that's why I started by saying this is a, a space where civics has failed us of we as a country learn about the Emancipation Proclamation and the fact that Lincoln freed the slaves, but we don't hear about the fact that there was an actual thought about the financial burden that that was going to cause the slave owners and an intentional effort to do something to make them feel better so that they could become a part of the country. But that's never been done for African-Americans and while I've always struggled with the idea of reparations, I'm glad that we have a municipality that's making the effort to right a lot of wrongs that have been done in this country. And I do just want to jump on it because I think this is can't be uh, over. I, I just don't want to gloss over this since we are talking about Reconstruction. We are taught about Reconstruction in the same exact context that Terrell references, which is Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, the 13th and 14th Amendments. Um, However, we don't talk enough about how, yes, during Reconstruction, initially land was given to African-American, uh, enslaved Africans, as we should be saying, not using the word slave, mm-hmm. um, parts of parts of land. However, when Andrew Johnson became uh, president, they took all of that land back and gave it to the previous owners of that land. Mm-hmm. And in conjunction with what um, they did by paying them for each slave. So they, they actually didn't really see an economic downfall in the long term. Um, and, and actually that's what, when they returned the land to these previous slave owners, um, they started what allowed um, formerly enslaved Americans to be, to share crop, which actually started a cycle of debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, kind of going back to the the reparations from Evanston. I just think, I think this is a really good first step and I'm really hopeful that um, other cities see this and go, okay, like we like this. We like, we don't like that as much. I don't know, but this is kind of a blueprint um, for it to be maybe taken up in other places and maybe soon the federal level too, which I think is kind of exciting. I think it's pretty cool. Later in the episode, we will have our second segment of the legislative lowdown, where we will break down the policy and politics of house resolution one, the for the people act. H.R. 1 is a voting rights bill that looks to expand and protect voting rights for all Americans and ensure equal access to the ballot box. This historic legislation would make it easier to vote in federal elections, end congressional gerrymandering by implementing nonpartisan redistricting committees, overhaul federal campaign finance laws, increase safeguards including an investment in cybersecurity against foreign interference, strengthen government ethics rules, and more. Most of these reforms would be implemented for the November 2022 general election with the ex- exception of some redistricting and public financing changes that would go into effect later. Join us later in the show as we dive a bit deeper and discuss the politics around what I believe to be one of the most significant and important pieces of voter legislation since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Last but not least in our Above the Fold segment, uh, per the New York Times, first COVID, then psychosis, the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. A direct quote, like a light switch. It happened this fast. This intense paranoia hit me. Mr. Adgerton said in interviews over two months, it was really single-handedly the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life. Mr. Adgerton's experience reflects a phenomenon doctors are increasingly reporting. Uh, They call it long COVID. Uh, Psychotic symptoms emerging weeks after coronavirus infection in some people with no previous uh, history of mental illness. A lot of people are starting to describe this as one of the largest mass disabling events in modern history, which is actually very intense. And the more I read about this, the more I'm grateful since I did have COVID several months ago that I have 
I think, not experience these symptoms. Doctors say such symptoms may be one manifest manifestation of brain-related after effects of COVID-19. Along with more common issues like brain fog, memory loss, and neurological problems, new onset psychosis may result from an immune response, vascular issues, or inflammation from the disease process, experts hypothesize. Sporadic cases have occurred with other viruses. And while such extreme symptoms are likely to affect only a small proportion of COVID survivors, cases have emerged worldwide. And there's weird differences between what this is that's brought on by COVID and what typical psychosis patients experience. Like COVID, COVID patients, um, they know something's wrong, but typical psychosis patients actually don't know that something's wrong, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. But scientists and doctors right now don't have enough information to know exactly what causes this and if it's even temporary. And I just got to say, y'all, this is some really freaky stuff. And I just kind of wanted to get your quick reactions from it. Uh, we'll start with Terrell. I think we all have this recognition right from the onset of a year ago to now there's a lot we don't know and that's terrifying there's no hiding that there's no pretending that um we went from a virus that was purely respiratory to recognizing that it can cause swelling in your foot and that might be an early indicator that you have um COVID 19 it can cause an irregular heartbeat. It can cause brain fog, losing um, sense or losing taste in your your tongue. It's terrifying, and it's it's a piece that I think internationally we will grapple with as time moves on. And while I'm thankful that we are moving and moving forward with vaccinations there are a lot of repercussions and a lot of things that are going to come out of this that scientists just haven't had the opportunity to study. Um, and I hope that as we learn more and as we find out more, it can kind of be a catalyst to the next phase of scientific research. I agree with what Terrell had to say, mostly because I don't have a lot to say about this other than the fact that I am happy I have not had COVID and this is precisely the reason. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't need more of a reason to try to avoid COVID in a serious manner because it's science. It's a virus that has not been tested. Has not. We do not know all of its effects. We do not know its long-term uh, effects on the human body. We don't know fully how age factors into it. We've had, you know, a lot of young people have had a mild case of it, but have had long, mild symptoms or these symptoms like that have been mentioned in this article. So I'm just happy uh, that I haven't gotten it. And I would like to hope that other people are um, reading this and taking the advice that they should be taking this a little more seriously if they weren't. In a democracy, the right to vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have. Many people marched and protested for the right to vote. Some gave a little blood and others lost their lives. Like the great John Lewis said in that previous clip, people have put their bodies and their lives on the line for the right to vote in this country. Today, in the legislative lowdown, we want to get into H.R. 1, the For the People Act of 2021. To me, as I stated, I think, in the American Dream Act, uh, episode, as well as my first episode back on the pod, there is nothing more important to me than, than voting. I think that it is the foundation and bedrock of our democracy, um, especially in a representative democracy. Um, and I think that H.R. 1 is going to be, if we can get it passed, the landmark piece of legislation of my young adulthood, um, because without it, without ensuring the right and the access to the ballot box for every American, um, what is America? And to get into this a little bit, um, I, I want to restructure the conversation a bit from last week. Um, I'm not going to go through every every point here at the top. I actually want to kind of go through it because I think that when we're talking about the specifics of this bill, it's so robust mm -hmm. that there's certain parts of it. Um, we have some polling on it, right? We have some polling on different parts of it, and some are more popular than others. But on its face, it's a, it's a very broadly popular bill. Um, but there are certain parts of it that I think that if we get to the point where they're negotiating to get this passed through the Senate, if that's even a possibility, uh, with the filibuster still intact, that we might see some of these parts come out. 
Mm-hmm. But there are some that even if we do strip others out, that it will strengthen our democracy and still protect the right to vote in a way that is not going to continue to um, have a, a very open and blatant uh, disadvantage to the Democratic Party and an open and blatant advantage to the Republican Party, especially with these hundreds of voter suppression bills in Republican controlled legislatures across the country. Um, so to start this off, it kind of is the, the tip of the iceberg with voting is how this bill changes voter registration. Um, This bill offers automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, and implements a national online registration for every state. Now, some states already have some of these. So 19 states in the D.C. already have automatic voter registration, where similar to when you go to get your... Uh, when you go get your license when you turn 18 or 16 and you are automatically put in for the draft, this would be make this more of an opt-out situation rather than opt-in situation with voter registration, which I truly believe it should be. Um, if I can be involuntarily put in for a draft, I do think that as an American, as a citizen in a democracy, one would find it equally as important that if I'm, I can go die for this country, I can also vote. Mm-hmm. Do you guys agree? Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. We should be we should be encouraging voting. What what better way to do it than this, right? Exactly. Um, and, and, and with the online voter registration, which would allow for people to go on and um, provide, well, it would require each state to provide an online voter registration application that may be completed, submitted, and received by election officials electronically. It also will allow registered voters to update their voter registration information online. Um, And it would permit voters without DMV records to register online using electronic copies of handwritten signatures, secure online signatures, or or by providing a signature upon actually requesting a ballot, which is, which, and I'll get to this later, but there is, there is another provision in this bill that for people who might be thinking, well, do we want people registering to vote online without having to go in and provide an ID, et cetera, that there, when it comes to actual voting, there's a provision in this bill that requires and mandates a physical paper ballot trail for every single vote cast. But Mm -hmm. we're going to get into that a little bit later. Um, So as far as voter registration here in Michigan, we have a number of these provisions that we voted on in 2018 and it was most popular. Thank you. It was the most popular ballot initiative in 2018 among three. Um, what what, are, what is it like in Ohio? In, excuse me, Idaho. Do you really have to ask that question? <laughs> well, the legislators are taking away ballot rights. Woo! So what else? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's interesting from my perspective too because one of the greatest elections I think I've been able elections um, I've been able to to cast a vote in was that specific one. I remember being able to vote for the proposal to change the Michigan constitution to allow for a nonpartisan commission to draw all districts in the state to mm-hmm. have automatic voter registration only to move to jolly old Idaho, <laughs> um, where it's still a very partisan system. Um, you can still, they still have um, closed primary. So if you like myself, register to vote during the um, state fair and happen to do it with your political party, you are now labeled as and tagged as a Democrat. And that goes on your record and and does have broader implications that I think a lot of individuals don't recognize until it's already too late. I I think I said uh, ballot rights earlier. Ballot initiative rights is the correct terming there. Uh, They're making it, they've done this before in the past, but the legislator is trying to make it harder to uh, get ballot initiatives mm-hmm. on the ballot. Um, it used to be you have to get in like a third of counties or something similar, but now they're trying to make it so you have to get a certain amount of signatures in all the counties, which basically means, and I think there's more in there too, but basically it means that you have to have a lot of money if you want to get a ballot initiative on the ballot. Um, and they're doing it. Uh, uh, I don't know if anyone's outright said, said this, but I suspect they're doing it because uh, one of the most popular ballot initiatives in recent years was Medicaid expansion. And uh, we voted yes on that. It was like 67% or something. So two thirds of the state voted yes on that, even though it's a very Republican state. And the legislator basically tiptoed around it and tried to not listen to the voters' words and did their best to basically cancel that. And now they're trying to take away ballot initiatives. Or well, make so it as far very as, hard. Make it very hard. Yeah. 
Well, on, on face, I, I didn't. I want to make sure that I mention this is that like when we're talking about this bill on uh, overall, a lot of the opposition to it um, comes from the Republican Party, who says that that uh, it's, that is has been putting forth these bills in state legislatures to combat against the alleged voter fraud in which there is no evidence of in 2020. Um, and and that, that is becoming an increasingly frustrating um, argument yeah. because in any court of law, the burden of proof is on them and there is not any. And in actually in upwards of 60 courts of law, that has been said to be the case in the rulings. And so it's matter. becoming really, really frustrating. There is no evidence of voter fraud in, in the, in the, or of, of large scale voter fraud that would have affected the election in 2020. And just to put some, some statistics out there that as far as the point I was making earlier about America identifying where we have some weaknesses and placing a solution there when it's available is that this data is from 2016 out of the Pew Research Center, but 55 point, we only had 55.7% voter turnout in 2016, in the 2016 election, which placed us at 30 out of 35 modern industrialized democracies. And to give our listeners a clue on like some of those who those are, we're talking Italy, UK, Canada, France, Germany, right. Japan, Iceland, South Korea, and yeah. others that you wouldn't think to be on, on yeah. that list. So the, a lot of that has to do with the disparity in voter in voter registration, or rather eligible voters percentage in comparison to the actual voter registration number. And like I made in my point about the, the draft, I cannot understand on a country that prides itself on being the leading democracy in the world, that we don't believe that it's a sound decision to automatically register 18-year-old citizens in this country to vote. But we do think that it's no it's no big deal just to toss them into the draft, which in, if that was ever an act, it could put their lives at risk. I don't understand the values there, but I think that it, it says very clearly what people think. But a piece that you can't ignore here is the last time Congress took a step to actually support and uplift democracy to this degree was 1965 during the civil rights movement with the Voting Rights Act. Um, so I feel like, while I agree with you, the value structure and, and the, the thought that is going in from one side of the aisle here is limited. America has a history of struggling when it comes to voting and when it comes to actually living up to the claim of democracy, no matter how many wars we might think we can fight to prove it. And and I mean, you've done a great job pointing out the automatic draft piece of we will go to war to help prop up and support democracy abroad, but we can't ignore that here on home soil, we've never done well with it. America has a history of a lot of things like, this (laughs) this <laughs> racism never having a conversation about big ticket issues well, and, and that's something that like i almost mentioned during like the reparations conversation which is like other countries that we've gone to war with we could say specifically world war one mm-hmm. um and and the treaty after world war one that required so much of germany that it basically bankrupted it and gave you know, they have had to pay for their sins and we have held other countries accountable for their sins against humanity. And I can't find one single place where the U S has ever paid for its sins against humanity, specifically slavery and building its foundation of this country on the backs of slaves. Yeah. Cause we're the leader, right? Like and we, we don't have to look at ourselves. We're perfect. And we step out of any accountability center. Like let's not pretend like we actually listen to the UN tribunal. We actively have, gone against and said that they are not a legitimate source of accountability abroad, mostly because they brought us up on multiple war crime charges in the past. Um. <laughs> what? No, we're the, <laughs> we're the leader of the world. We don't have to listen to that shit. But I, all that to say, and another really big piece of this bill that I would even love to dive into is both of our presidential elections, 2016 and 2020, It has been proven by multiple um, corners and departments of our government that our elections were hacked. There was a concerted effort to deter individuals from voting how they felt. There was a concerted effort to prop up and share out more information, misinformation, excuse me, about candidates and topics to confuse voters as they get into the voting booth. And this bill specifically has so much election security focus in it to 
really combat those issues and give states the opportunity to do the work necessary to protect and secure our elections. And yet we still pretend as if there was never a Russia hack. There, there was a former occupant of the white house that called it a a hoax. And there are little puppets running around in the Senate currently that are furthering that message. So I question as we get into this bill and we get into the importance of voting, if a party is winning because of misinformation and the opportunity to confuse voters or not have the most secure voter um, system, are there opportunities for them to not only torpedo this, but prop up that, yeah, it is a partisan lean to care about elections. Well, I mean, to dive in that a bit, that the bill does set forth provisions related to election security, including sharing intelligence information with state election officials, supporting states in securing their election systems, developing a national strategy to protect U.S. democratic institutions, establishing in the legislative branch the National Commission to Protect United States Democratic Institutions, and other provisions to improve the cybersecurity of election systems. Um, it also establishes other rules that, that limit the amount of money that a foreign um, that a foreign agent can contribute to any campaign and also um, addresses ethics in all three branches of go- government, including by requiring a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices, prohibiting members of the House from serving on the board of a for-profit entity, and establishing additional conflict of interest and ethics provision for federal employees at the White House, um, including mandating publicizing tax returns for candidates running for president and vice president, mm-hmm. which I think kind of, that was that was a lot of the bill that I just threw in there, but it's because between the misinformation that it's tackling, the the, the misinformation about our, the elect, our, our online systems um, and their integrity, and also about all of the gray area around uh, former President Trump's tax returns, mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani, the contributions of foreign agents, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and anyone can say that this is a partisan backlash to all of that those things. But if you don't look at this on face and you don't agree as an American that this is, this is a way to strengthen our de- democracy and secure our elections then I would say that they're the person with the partisan issue, not us. Let me rephrase my question slightly. How would you respond to a senator who calls this a bill written by the devil himself? I would tell Mike Lee to please never run for public office again and to never speak to me. <laughs> is that a direct quote? Because, <laughs> I mean, this is this is infuriating. Yeah. This is incredibly infuriating. Because, one, Mike Lee, what do you mean? What because the fuck does that mean? I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that the represent, representative Sarbanes who introduced this bill would not like to be uh, called the so-called devil. Okay, um, and yes, been I don't, worse. and I don't think that on a more serious note that if you stand for democracy, that you would look at this bill on its face and then say it's written by the devil. Because if that's the case, then what is your idea of the devil, and what do you think? Like, it's just so asinine that I can't believe I'm giving it any airtime. Well, the devil is more people voting and more people voting equals, you know, people who aren't white. And so, no, yeah, absolutely. So to, to, to say on the topic of being nonpartisan when it comes to this bill is that this does mandate a nonpartisan redistricting committee for redrawing districts every 10 years across the country, which again, like we cited earlier, is something that we um, voted on a 2018 ballot measure in Michigan to do. Because again, on its face, this is a very nonpartisan thing. I think that when you get into when you get into the details of this, it only highlights the blatant um, partisanship of the right when it comes to to changing election laws and their opposition to this to this bill. What do you guys think? How do you how, how difficult knowing the filibuster may or may not be intact? Do you think it will be to get this passed? And do we also just to ask that question think that this is a good a good reason to eliminate the filibuster for the sake of strengthening democracy? Call me a fundamentalist or institutionalist. I don't know. Don't call me an originalist, though. I am not Justice Scalia. Um, (laughs) But I, I find it hard to believe that the filibuster is the problem, right? I find it hard to believe that getting rid of that is going to be the solution to all our problems and will have no long lasting ramifications. I agree with uh, Caleb to the point of 
there can be reforms about it. There can be a callback to how the filibuster once was of you go to the floor, you have to keep speaking until debate is up. And there are certain things that you can't do. And if the opposition party or the other party, whatever word you want to use there, um, catches you doing those things, they can raise those objections. If you get three objections, your filibuster is over and they can proceed to a vote. Um, but all of that to say, I, I think back to uh, the episode after, um, I think it was after Georgia, Caleb. We were talking about what do the Democrats do next? Like, where do they go from here? And um, Representative Clyburn spoke very eloquently about the importance of showing up for BIPOC folk. And I think this bill is that opportunity. Um. I think it's a space where the Democrats cannot afford to not show up. And if that means they have to get rid of the filibuster, I struggle with it, obviously. But this this bill stops what we saw from the Supreme Court when they moved away from the Voting Rights Act. This stops what we're hearing from Georgia um, limiting voting on Sundays. This stops the concerted efforts to disenfranchise voters across this country and that matters and you know i agree with you like i think i said in in the conversation originally about the filibuster that i would like to see it reformed and i'm not opposed to to striking it down altogether but really i should clarify that what i mean by that is that i want a 50 vote threshold like the constitution calls for whether that means implementing the filibuster as it previously was without a cloture vote that requires them to actually stand up there and filibuster and like you said, with the three objections and move to a vote where that threshold is only 50 plus one votes, I'm okay with that. But what I'm talking about is I want to get to a point where our representative democracy is actually representative democracy with majority rule in the Senate as it was intended in the Constitution. If the founding fathers would have wanted it to be a 60 vote threshold, they would have put that in there. They didn't. And that is just the, cl- the clear answer here. Now, to, to state my position, I will say chuck the filibuster so far away as fast as we can if that's what it comes to to get this bill passed because I think that this is necessary in strengthening our democracy um, and I'm not willing to debate that on racist um, racist voter suppression bills that the Republicans are putting forward and uh, look no further than what happened after the Shelby County versus Holder decision in 2013 struck down part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the wave of voter suppression bills that happened right after. It's very clear the issue with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is not that we as Democrats disagree on voting rights necessarily. We disagree on who gets to vote, and we need to be more. We need to be more clear about that and stop and stop calling it what it's not. They don't want people of color to vote. They want to put every barrier they can to keep that from to keep them from voting. And I think that we need to have the conversation in those terms and not just some stupid, stupid, unfound argument about voter fraud that doesn't exist. Terrell, I I want to uh, uh, kind of respond to what you said. I I think I agree with you. I don't think the filibuster is the root cause of what we're experiencing as a nation, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems like a lot of the solutions to the problem go through the filibuster. And I'm not saying that the filibuster needs to be destroyed and, and blasted away forever. It needs to be reformed. But... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how we got here, I don't, there's probably a lot of reasons. There's probably plenty of reasons of why we got here or what the diagnosis of the problem of our divided America is today and what one party's trying to do over the other and whatnot. Um, and the filibuster, I don't think is the root cause of that, but mm-hmm. it seems to be the way to perhaps a better society at this yeah. moment of time. And it seems to be in the way of that. And so what do we do about it? And that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Just two quick shout outs. One for all my Michiganders out there. Um, sounds like Torrance is calling on Matthew Stafford to do a quick little shovel pass with the filibuster. If that means more people can vote. Um, RIP because he's with the Rams now. But also Henry Reed. Um, this is on you. You went nuclear. That's why we're still having this conversation to this day. Did you call him Henry? I did say Henry. <laughs> Harry Reid, my apologies. Um, that's that's just an honest fact, though. 
and not that it's this is kind of silly but not that it's much better but i would like to state for the record i am not a lions fan i am a bears fan chicago through and through in this household and my grandma's probably listening so she needs to know i will stick up poor choices are being made on this podcast right now (laughs) wait wait what was that because i could barely hear you we have a comedian on our hands today, people. So I just want to wrap up this legislative lowdown segment by saying, you know, I'm really interested in continuing this conversation around HR1 as well as the filibuster, as I think it is going to be an evolving one um, when it comes to its passage to the Senate over the following months. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I think that voting as well as the filibuster, like Caleb said, uh, do kind of run through a lot of our issues here in the in, in the United States, uh, specifically through the Senate, and not necessarily they're the root of the problem, but rather stops the solution to the problems like Caleb said. And so um, I'm looking forward to continue to discuss these things with you. Um, and we will see you guys next time on the legislative lowdown. And one piece I would just like to add, <laughs> even though we were wrapping up one thing I value about our podcast is this issue matters to our demographic. This issue matters to our age group. Um, passage of a bill to this nature will allow for us to have the voice we've been asking for in our government for generations. And I appreciate both of you and your perspectives and your ability to come in and speak to this. But one thing for our listeners um, that I just don't want to be missed or to be neglected is this isn't the argument that our parents might be having about voting. This isn't the argument that our grandparents might have had about voting. This is our generation's opportunity to really truly call to the better graces of this country and really say, what does democracy mean? How do we show it and how do we live up to it? And to let that piece um, be missed out on, I just didn't want to allow. Well, traditionally, I would say that we need to go on a tangent right now. And I mean, to an extent, I guess this can be a tangent. Take it as you will. Keep it in two minutes, as always. Um, But we did have a listener reach out to us via text and wanted to pose this question to all of us. Um, And it's a really good one. And I think it, it fits the conversation we just had from the legislative lowdown. So this listener asks, could you describe what your ideal America would look like? A hard question. A lot of thoughts. I don't know. I think I have a pretty pretty good answer right now. Then I'll let you kick us off. Take us on a tangent. Those of you that know me may know me as a fry sauce snob. And what I would really like is for <laughs> fry sauce to be available in all of the United States and not just the West. And that would be my ideal America. I'm so happy you took that in a comedic direction. <laughs> that was actually really good. For those of you who don't um, because know what it, fry sauce is, it's a combination of ketchup and mayonnaise, and it's great. It's fantastic. Give me a glass and I'll drink it. Thanks. Go on, Torrance. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me let me try to tackle this question as uh, I'm quite familiar with this listener who posed the question, um, and he posed it in person and gave me a, a heart attack trying to actually answer it. So... Um, <laughs> You have a heart? <laughs> it's it's not, I guess like when, when I answer this question, like what does my ideal America look like? It's a complicated answer only because in some ways I don't know if it's possible. <laughs> uh, and I, that's a really tough thing to say, right? Uh, for me, the ideal America is where everyone's individuality is truly respected and that we're all given the space, that our diversity is truly um not only just respected, but highlighted and given it's true. Um, I honestly don't even know how to word it. It's, it's kind of difficult. Um, mostly because I care a lot about this country and I, I do believe that I have like a myriad of things that I would like to contribute to it. Um, but we, we've often said like in, in the new, in, in the show, the newsroom in the first episode, there's that really iconic speech that's given by the main character. But the question that's asked is what makes America the greatest country? And the Republican in the, in the show says freedom and freedom. And the liberal representative in the, in, in the show says diversity and opportunity. And I guess when I think like, what would my ideal America look like? It would be the true essence of those things. Mm. 
that freedom is extended to everyone, that the words that are inscribed on the Statue of Liberty ring true and that we actually do give solace to people who are asking for it, that we don't have an inhumane response to the border crisis like we did in the previous administration, and that we do better moving forward by building a, an infrastructure and a process that is humane and that is efficient, and that the Equality Act is actually passed and that little transgender you know, girls and boys get to grow up seeing, seeing themselves for who they are and being respected for those things. And that mm-hmm. we live in a place where we are, that people are not discriminated or hated for the color of their skin or for the way that they pray or who they pray to or whether they don't at all or who they love and whether they want to get married or not get married or if they need access to an abortion or if they need help paying their rent if they need help putting food on the table through food stamps if they we want people we want to create a country that truly lives up to the promise that it says um and that the american dream is not one just for some people but for all and that we live up to that by matching it with with the policies and the legislation um that are going to actually meet that moment but because of the way our politics is now and the disinformation and the too prevalent hate and discrimination that we see across this country i almost feel like it's an impossibility to get there and that breaks my heart but that doesn't mean that we don't continue to try because that is the promise of america it's a keep trying Torrance, I completely agree with you. And you kind of mentioned what I was actually thinking, all jokes aside from the first thing I said. Um, An ideal America, I think, is where, and I'll just put it simply because I think you put it more beautifully than I probably could in my own words. Um, But I think an ideal America for me is an America that the American dream is real and it's the opportunity is there for everybody, not just a select few everybody and equally and in that an America that celebrates who everybody is, I think is the ideal America that I want. Not just fry sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I, when I saw this message, um, very similar to you, Torrance, I struggled for a hot second, but I always find myself going back to, I want to say I was in Pennsylvania. Uh, It might've been West Virginia. They looked the same at a certain point in time. Um, For those of y'all who don't know, I was a consultant for two years before moving to Boise and I got to travel through the Midwest Midwest region. And um, as an African-American male traveling through West Virginia is terrifying, but there's a lot of reflection that comes out of that. And I think for this listener, my answer is my ideal America is an America where no one's left behind. While I will always advocate for fight for and articulate the struggles that our BIPOC folk are going through. I can't help but ignore the fact that for those individuals who are getting lumped in with the Trumpians and who are a part of middle America working on the farms this country is also rapidly changing for them too. And there's a shift to urban life. There's a shift to internet and there's a shift to opportunities that they aren't granted because their nearest grocery store is either their backyard or four miles down the road in the next quote unquote big city. And I don't know what bridging those two gaps look like. I don't know what equity for, uh, a black boy looks like while also giving equity for a Caucasian male who works on a farm looks like, and that's not to pretend that there aren't BIPOC folk who work on a farm too. There are, and this administration has done work to, to prop them up and actually support them finally. Um, but I, I think the ideal America is an America where no one's left behind. There is an understanding that there are two experiences. There's hell, there's seven experiences that people are having in America right now. And no one is a correct answer and no one is where we should lean into, but there should be an opportunity for all seven of those experiences to get to some sense of happiness. Um, and I, I mean, if that's not what America is, then there never would have been the use of the phrase pursuit of happiness. Right. So that's my team. In America where no one is left behind is maybe the most beautifully way I think it could be put. So um, I applaud you there, Terrell, for real. I really like that. That touched me. I wanted to end on one last note. It doesn't pertain to the question at hand, but today, this is Wednesday, um, 
before we usually release on Thursdays. Uh, back at Boise State, which I'm still currently a student of, uh, my my younger sister um, decided to run with uh, her friend Kenny um, for president and vice president. My sister is running for vice president specifically. The way it works here is you run as a ticket. And um, today we got the election results and they won. And it was close and it was it was hard fought. And it felt like everybody was kind of out to get them. And I just wanted to, I don't know if she actually listens to this, but I just wanted to say, Sarah, I'm so proud of you as an older brother. And um, honestly, to me, it didn't matter what happened today. Um, the, the, the grit in the, just the fight that you had within you, that you kept in this, you didn't quit. Um, and you ran a good campaign um, that supported other people. And, and you didn't, you didn't take, take dirty, dirty aims or make it a dirty campaign against under individuals. I'm just so proud of what you've done and, um, good luck to your term for the next year. But other than that, I believe that's our show. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. Mm-hmm.